This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wachenheim III, Sylvia A. and Simon B. Poita Programming Endowment to Fight Anti-Semitism, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, and by Janet Prindle Seidler, Jody and John Arnhold, Cheryl and Philip Milstein family, Judy and Josh Weston, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the JPB Foundation. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. 50 years after Stonewall, what does life look like for LGBTQ plus youth in New York? The new documentary, Peer Kids from POV, transports viewers to the Christopher Street Pier, a place where homeless queer black youth have forged community and family. The film shines a light on the lives of amazing young people who have been marginalized by society and chronicles how they have created an oasis for themselves in the piers. Exposing a side of New York, many people choose to ignore. Here's a preview. This whole village is another world inside a world. Homeless youth come to this area because this is what we know as safe zone. This is where we socialize, we make some angles. Out of summer, I'm definitely going to be in housing. I can feel it. The police make it seem like they're going to stop prostitution. They're homeless, so they, you know, they turn into this lifestyle. Officer, you want to search me? They just don't like it. Ma, all I'm asking you to do is just see me. That's it. I don't know her as Krista. This is my nephew. What's wrong with taking this lifestyle, setting it outside your mother's door? I'm tired of doing that. What would I have done? Joining me now as part of our Chasing the Dream initiative on poverty, justice, and economic opportunity in America is the director of Peer Kids, Elegance Bratton. Elegance, welcome to Metro Focus. Hey, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on as well. And we're also joined tonight by one of the principal participants in the film, Crystal LaBeja. Crystal, it's so great to have you on the show too. It's a pleasure to be here as well. Thank you for having me. So Elegance, I want to start with what might feel like an obvious question, but still worth asking. And that is, how did this film come to be? And what was it that you were hoping to capture when you first picked up the camera? Uh, this film comes from a very personal place. I spent 10 years of my life homeless from 16 to 25. I'm from North Jersey, right across the river from the pier. So I ended up there. Um, and I was really pleased to find a place where I was deeply understood right off the bat. Fast forward about a decade or so, and I finished a tour of duty in the Marine Corps. I'd gotten accepted to Columbia University and given me an assignment to discover living social networks. And simultaneously, I was finishing my first semester of school 
and realizing that the biological family that my classmates depended on to kind of mark their progress through their education, I didn't have that. So in that process of trying to understand where home was and also trying to fulfill my grades, I kind of looked around one day and realized, oh, wow, I'm here on Christopher Street asking myself these questions. I looked around again and I saw so many people who look like me, who are black like me, who are queer like me. And I picked up a camera and started the process to the view of this film. So I guess to answer your second part of your question, what I was hoping to get out of this was to show people the importance of public space for young queer youth of color and also to help working class communities of color have a language around queer identity to stop kicking their kids out of their houses. Well, I do want to come back to that uh, issue of uh, a place for people who don't have a place. But Crystal, I want to bring you in and ask, uh, how did you come to be involved with the film? Well, so as you mentioned about the uh, sharing camaraderie or like experiences with those individuals makes them your chosen family. Um, and for that purpose, being the mama bear I am, I tend to, I saw a, a, young, a young, vibrant, melanated individual with the camera recording people in a sensitive area. I mean, at a sensitive time in their lives, they were under the influence of substances to get away from their uh, daily hardships. And I just didn't want them to be taken advantage of. So when I seen him with professionally quality uh, equipment, I came up to him and I uh, interrupted his interview and said, what are you recording for? What is this for? Because I knew the questions that I could ask to kind of pull what this this footage will be used for. Because they they probably did wouldn't know why someone's recording them. They just see a camera and hey, I'm on TV. And so I just wanted to make sure that it was going to be used in a proper light. And in turn, he asked to uh, follow up with me because he hasn't he didn't select his cast at that time. And so that's when he followed up with me and said he uh, he would like to. Uh, furthermore record with me and I think for us our friendship grew because um, I know for most documentaries it's traditional that they don't interact or get on camera with the participant and for me it was like I was new to California uh, to New York City and so I told them if I'm gonna reveal the veil because I'm transitioned to be woman not transitioning to be other and so it's if I'm gonna reveal the veil and be transparent on my process, I need you to be my friend because otherwise a random person wouldn't get this information because I wouldn't feel feel comfortable to do that. But I need to do this so that other kids who come from rural communities and conservative towns can know that there's a, pos a, a way to get it done if they have the drive and the dedication to do so. And through it all, you can still achieve your womanhood without assistance or support. Um, because there is other support out there. You just have to seek it. Well, Crystal, you touched on so many of the themes of the film, but one of the things that comes through so very clear in all of, with all of the participants is that sense of family uh, that you both mentioned. But since you refer to yourself as a mama bear, I'm wondering how you see uh, family developing for the young people who gravitate towards Christopher Street. How does that family sort of come together, what are those family bonds like? And perhaps how are they different from the families that they came from? Well, oftentimes when you're, uh, when you're restricted to just public housing or shelters, 
um, homelessness looks different for Black queer individuals because we are um, dealing with discrimination within the shelter system and just not having enough beds and you have, if you're working or fulfilling the requirements of, um, you know, your caseworkers uh, goal for the week, you oftentimes have no time to get in line to make sure you have a bed the next day. So we kind of rely on each other and with couch, we, as we say, couch surfing, sleeping at someone's house um, that already been placed, um, that just relieving yourself from the woes of the week because you get more no's than you do get yes because of stereotypes and things of that sort. So it's like we, we lean on each other. And I always say blood is, you know, they always say blood is thicker than water. But for me, blood doesn't know what I went through yesterday. They don't know my favorite movie of tomorrow. They don't know what, what, what I did last month and why it was hard. But these people around me do. So for me, family is those who witness your existence. The ones who witness your existence the most is chosen family. And for me, that that's how the peer it is. We go back to check in with each other to make sure everyone, you're still there. You're still here. If nothing more, you walked around and you were able to check in with someone to say, I'm still here. Because we do know that trans lives, although it's said they matter, through visibility now, ignorance is running rapid in our community. And oftentimes, my sisters and brothers are dying by the hands of either police or our community. So whereas Black Lives Matter, we also have to remember that tomorrow I may not see my sister. So having check-in spaces like the pier is one way that we're able to know that my sister made it through another day. Elegance, I see you nodding your head to all of that. Uh, I, I'm just, uh, it's such a pleasure to be able to do this interview with Crystal because we have these conversations so much in private. So it's just great to hear you on this platform, you know, speaking, speaking your truth. And I, and I agree, you know, for me, family is the place where one is most deeply understood. Um, and, that, and that is what home is. On Christopher Street, these young people make them, make their, uh, their, they make each other their home, so to speak, right? By witnessing one another's existence and caring about the outcome of one another's hopes and aspirations, we turn each other into our own kind of family home. So that means if I'm outside on the corner with you, I'm as much at home with you as if I was in uh, a sheltered place, at least spiritually speaking, right? And that, that spiritual home makes it a little bit easier to understand, I think, not having a home. And it also gives you a base to actually find a, a tangible home, that kind of support. So one of the other things that I found incredibly uh, moving and important was the realization of how much of a lot of trends and culture that we, a lot of us consume in mainstream America seems to uh, find its genesis within this community. Um, everything from, you know, just music types to dancing, to fashion, to language, all of these things. And so I want to get both of your perspectives on the fact that there is definitely a level of um, appreciation, let's say, for the culture that's created, but do you feel as though that translates to the people creating it? And uh, Elegance, I'll start with you. Sure, I think it's, I think it's a, a really great question and there's a lot of you know, gray area to explore and answering it, right? Like in, the, the short answer is 
there is clearly a disconnect between the appreciation of the cultural form generated by black queer people and the quality of life that black queer, black queer people experience uh, today. You know, there's definitely, there's, there's some, some delay between the, the positive impact and the actual lived experience. That being said, I do think that black queer performance culture, and, and, and mind you, like a, a huge part of my own personal kind of thesis as an artist, as a black artist, is that, you know, the, although we're queer, we are still a part of the overall tradition of, you know, black entertainment in America, which has always been a site of political agitation and transformation, right? Because when you're denied access to meaning, the meaning of democracy through voting and land ownership and financial opportunity and things of that nature, performance culture can become the only space within which you're, you're not only can you be heard, but the people that you represent can be imagined, right? Like when we think of, you know, ragtime, jazz, blues, hip hop, soul music, so much of the narrative of that culture is the narrative of black people at any given point in our political history and in society. So, you know, with that in mind, I do think that the representation of having, you know, trans people, like, like when I look at the Paris is Burning Generation, and I, then I look at RuPaul's Drag Race, and I look at this idea of people becoming famous and rich, being black and queer and being fabulous, that starts with people like Dorian Corey and Pepe LaBeja and so many of the people in Paris is Burning who were not making millions of dollars being themselves, but they were creating a model that which others can come in and start to monetize. So I do think that although there is a drag between how, excuse the pun, between how we how we consume black cultural production versus how we support black people living so that they can actually make these things, I do think that every act of performance, every act of representation is its is a step in the right direction that allows other people, once you've cracked that door open a little bit, now more people can come in and people like Crystal and people like Laomi and people like Janet Mott, now they're able to stand on the successes of the previous generation and that success is through performance. You know, Crystal, we've uh, done several stories here at 13 talking about the culture and the community that sort of exists within um, the Christopher Street piers or the larger um, neighborhood around it. And I feel like there's so much that people have heard about it, yet at the same time, this is a neighborhood that is has been gentrifying very quickly. So from your perspective, what are your concerns for um, the progress, let's say, of, you know, building a more upper class neighborhood and yet preserving something that sounds so critical to so much of the culture that we uh, consume and celebrate. Yes. Um, so my opinion in regards to that is it will displace a lot of community that Manhattan sets out to receive many grants to support, which is the black and brown LGBT community. They receive all this funding to support a community that can't even sleep or rest in or afford using the city vouchers, a place to stay in that same borough. So in turn, they go to the pier and as they make it prettier or more appealing to the tourists, it, dis it, it gives them excuse to push out the community in which they're supposed to be supporting 
or they're paid to do so. And so, yeah, I, I'm kind of, I'm thankful that they're cleaning it up, but I wish they wouldn't have such a hard um, stance against those who have always been there, even before you people could work out on the turf, even before they had a restaurant, even before they had a boardwalk and it was just rubble and square boxes. You saw people from the barroom community and you saw queer, black queer folks of all states and towns and countries coming to find safety in the meatpacking district, AKA the pier. Yeah, and I just want to piggyback off of that too. And you know, when we say words like gentrification, we must understand that implicit in that word is ethnic cleansing. It is to say that communities are, are the value of communities are determined by who's outside visible in those communities. And when we say something needs to be gentrified, what we are mobilizing in that word is a police response to those bodies and individuals that are deemed as being you know, worthless, troublesome, the property value, right? So implicit within gentrification, if you are someone who is gentrifying a place, please understand that through your presence, you're invoking police brutality, certainly. And more than likely, that brutality is being directed at people of color writ large. So then with all of that, with this uh, vibrant, uh, you know, chosen family community that sort of has existed within and around uh, the Chelsea Pier for so long, where do you see the support from the larger LD LGBTQ plus community? Um, is this something, because we've heard, I mean, I think many New Yorkers, you know, know that the Chelsea Piers is um, part of, you know, gay history, Stonewall is right there, et cetera. And yet the needs of that, of the community that you're talking about, black and brown LGBTQ youth hasn't necessarily been put front and center in the, uh, for lack of a better description, gay rights movement. So again, elegance, I'll give the mic to you. Yeah, you know, the whole purpose of Peer Kids is to redirect the gay rights movement towards solving the issue of queer youth homelessness. Now, you know, don't get it twisted. While, you know, black and brown kids are experiencing the worst of it, out of America's 2 million homeless youth, 60% of them are LGBTQ, regardless of the color of their skin or their ethnicity. So when we think about Stonewall, we think about Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson. You know, Sylvia Rivera hit the streets when she was 12 years old. Marsha P. Johnson was a 17-year-old black trans woman who chose her as her daughter. And when we think about Stonewall, what really happened is that the people who had, you know, the most to gain and the least to lose decided to fight and stand up for their own rights. Fast forward, you know, 50 years, we've got gay marriage, gays in the military, HIV and AIDS, by the grace of God, is now, you know, a chronic lifelong illness. It is not a death sentence. So if the community, you know, so, 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 and we have black and brown, trans women, queer people, homeless people, street kids, peer kids, to thank for these outcomes. So in my mind, now that that's been done, what is the gay rights movement if it's not dealing with queer youth homelessness? Like what, what possibly could be called gay civil rights if we're not talking about queer youth homelessness? So in the legacy of Sylvia and Marsha, you know, I believe that everybody who's LGBTQ is a peer kid. You're all the children of Sylvia and Marsha and the people who look like them. So all of these kids who are on the street, they're our kids. They're not some problem, amorphous problem. They are our community, they are our future. There is no gay community without them going forward. 
So it's on us as those of us who have the privilege and the stability and the, the, the space to know better. It's time for us to do better and take this on as our main issue. Where are, where is the housing? Where is the education? Where is the food? What are we doing as a community to make our, our gay rights movement matter in the 21st century? I think solving queer youth homelessness and, and, and secondarily a movie like Queer Kids Exist to provide help to working class people of color to understand their queer kids. I feel like you know, the gay rights movement has left black people behind in exchange for you know, the, the ability to, to, to be like heterosexuals and that's fine, right? We, we, you know, it, it's a part of a strategy for equal rights. However, now that we've accomplished this gay marriage, I do not believe that Sylvia Marsha took all those hits to the head from all those cops just so that upper middle class white men could get married. Okay. Crystal up into it. Yes, absolutely. Well, yes, if you want to add to that. Most definitely. Uh, it's more so a, a concurrence with the efforts of housing. I just want to also bring attention to the fact that although with legendary, with pose and everything of that sort, that celeb and Kiki in my house, elegance, um, <laughs> it celebrates a community that was founded by another black trans woman named Crystal LaBeja with the C um, in 1967, which predated Stonewall. And what they call the family systems there is house, sis. And the funny thing is, as we say, what we need and what we have always needed was houses. And so why people are trying to join ballroom houses People in the Black queer community, the reason why those was formed was to provide housing support to Black queer communities first. Then we taught them how to, uh, to survive within the social construct that was geared toward heteronormative uh, initiatives. And so with that being said, it still comes back to housing, houses, is what has always been needed. And as we celebrate the community, of ballroom, we have to remember that everyone who's participating in some way is hanging on by a string to housing or they're borrowing housing from other members within the house that has stability. There won't be, it won't be rectified and we won't stop seeing us make noise until we are able to have the one thing to, to secure our achievements, which is uh, safe housing. Okay. Um, I was wondering though, if you could talk because there could be, people might say, well, isn't there, uh, you know, housing that's intended for the homeless period? Why do you need something separate uh, in terms of housing? And I was wondering if you could speak to that, Crystal. Okay, so for me, it's not having something separate. Uh, when, when you're in the city system, there's a voucher that's provided to most who are homeless. The problem is when um when it comes to the budget that they provide it's very it's not enough to where a realtor is benefited by providing you that space and for anyone coming from a shelter they have stigmas that they are drug addicts or they're dealing with mental illnesses so that could be a problem that could be problematic with their house or with their uh, facility so the vouchers that most unless you are hiv positive the vouchers that you receive are not sufficient enough to even get housing in a safe environment. And given all the uh, statistics that shows in the neighborhoods in which most hate crimes or violence takes place, 
you would think that that would uh, uh, you would that only leaves one other option, which our vouchers really can't afford us the opportunity to stay. So it's more so providing more funding for vouchers in general, so that we can have the option to search uh, neighborhoods that are better fitted for our safety in our livelihood, in our lifestyles. Also, I think in my opinion. I think that, that I agree with everything Chris has said. I think in addition to that, you know, when, when someone was like, well, why do you need extra housing? I think we also need to kind of have a historical perspective on what is housing in New York City in the last 25 years and acknowledge that there have been many communities that have been just, you know, bled dry, right? That there are empty, vacant buildings throughout New York City that are not, that are just sitting there either for real estate real estate speculators to come and gentrify a neighborhood or just sitting there i believe that those that those houses like in my version of a solution whoever holds the keys to the gay rights movement in new york city would aggressively move for these empty apartments and put these homeless queer kids in it what makes them different from the regular or not regular but the average homeless person is that they're very young these are kids who are between the ages of like very often like like myself, 14, 15, 16 to like 25 years old. Everybody at that age requires help in order to be, to thrive in this community, into this society. Like you cannot come out of high school able to live on your own effectively. No one can. So imagine what how difficult that is for people like Crystal and myself who not, not only is it difficult, but you don't even have biological family to turn to if things get tough. So, yeah. you know, put, putting young people like that into the traditional shelter system now makes homelessness and makes family rejection into a, a, a prison pipeline. It's guarantee. It's almost, you start to guarantee that people have limited life outcomes by not acknowledging the actual true facts of what put them in that position. These are young people. These are somebody's children. When I was 16 and I was kicked out, the week before I was someone's kid. I didn't know how to have a job. I didn't know how to pay rent. I didn't know how to get a, a, a security deposit, any of those things. Yeah. So, to put me with adults would have been, you know, it could have been devastating, de devastating to my well, Unfortunately, and so unfortunately, we are going to have to leave it there, but I will encourage everyone watching to please catch the documentary, Peer Kids. Elegance Bratton, the director, uh, Crystal LaBeja, one of the principal participants whose story you get to follow. Thank you both so much for your time to talk about this incredibly moving film. Um, and thank you so much for joining us on Metro Focus. Stephanie, thanks for having me. Thank you.